The text for the sermon this morning is the first two verses of Romans 12. We'll read those verses once again. Romans 12, the verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So far the text. Following the proclamation of the word, we will begin our response by standing and singing together the words of hymn 48, the stanzas 2 and 3. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we look at Paul's letter to the church at Rome, it's good to be aware that there's a particular structure to this whole letter, and it's a structure that likely many of us will be very familiar with. We can draw it out a little bit. In the opening three chapters, the inspired apostle deals with the whole matter of sin and misery, and he makes it clear that this is a condition that is not only applicable to Gentiles, but he says this is for Jews also. From talking about sin, he moves on to deliverance, which comes through Jesus Christ. And there's those familiar passages, such as Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then there's the final part of the structure. After he's laid out sin, deliverance, he talks about the response, namely thankfulness. Like was said a moment ago, it's a structure that many of us are likely familiar with. That same structure was taken over by the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's also the structure that we have in self-examination as we prepare for the Holy Supper. Well, the verses that we have as our text this morning, they come right at the beginning of the third section, which deals with the matter of thankfulness. And in a sense, we could say that these two verses are an introduction to everything else that will follow in this letter. And these verses are fitting for us to consider because this instruction that we have here in our text is something comprehensive. It covers the entire life of the believer. And so I, about this, I may proclaim to you the Word of God this morning, doing so under the theme, present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. We're going to consider three points. First, the motivation for this sacrifice. Secondly, the character of this sacrifice. And finally, the pattern of this sacrifice. So first, the motivation. The inspired apostle begins our text with those words, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Seems like a fairly general introduction. But they're actually very important words to consider. Because with these words... 
The inspired apostle shows that he has a very pastoral heart. He uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. You find something similar in Ephesians 4 verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, why is this important? Paul could have begun the text by saying something like, I command you. I instruct you. He chooses to appeal to the brothers and sisters. And that word appeal in the original, it has the meaning of calling to one side for the purpose of encouraging. Paul's not coming down on the believers. He's not trying to place a heavy demand on their shoulders. And doing so would be going against the whole nature of the gospel. The Lord Jesus, the one in whom deliverance is found, had said, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And yet Paul doesn't want to minimize the importance of what he's about to write here. Namely, that believers present themselves to God as a living sacrifice. And so to convey the importance, he comes alongside, he says, okay, I'm going to teach you why this is important. And he begins by giving them the motivation for this sacrifice. It's clear from the text, the motive comes from looking at everything beforehand. You see that in the word, therefore. In the catechism classes, I'll often tell the students, when you have the word, therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? Because that word indicates that what's about to be said is a conclusion based on all the prior evidence. Well, the conclusion Paul gives here in our text is that believers need to present their bodies as a living sacrifice to God because of the mercies of God. Just a few words, but that is a loaded phrase. We're familiar with the idea of mercy. Mercy indicates that a person receives something they don't deserve. To show mercy, it indicates one has a heart filled with kindness, with compassion. That's exactly what Paul has addressed about God in all the chapters leading up to our text. And you can see this by considering just a few examples. In chapter 2, verse 4, we read the following, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul openly speaks about the fact that God is kind. God is forbearing. God is patient. God does not immediately react upon sin by wiping the sinner off the face of the earth, even though doing so would be perfectly just. But God operates in patience. He gives the sinner time. He gives the sinner opportunity to repent of their sin. There's another example. Chapter 4, verse 24. He writes about those who are justified by His grace as a gift. There's God's mercy. It's shown in His grace, His undeserved kindness, His favor, which He bestows upon those whom He chooses. 
One more example, chapter 6, verse 24, mention is made of the free gift of God, namely eternal life. Well, there again you see God's mercy coming out, that attitude of kindness and compassion. Those are just three examples. No doubt you could find many more if you would read through the first 11 chapters of this letter. And it's all based upon how the Lord revealed Himself way back in history. On Mount Sinai, He showed Himself to Moses. He proclaimed His name. You read it in Exodus 34. He said, I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love. But there's still more we need to say about God's mercies. Because notice that when Paul writes about these mercies, he does so in the plural. He could have simply spoken about the mercy of God, but he intentionally writes about mercies. There's two reasons for this. In the first place, it reflects Paul's Jewish background. The word in Hebrew, translated as mercy in the Old Testament, is typically found in the plural as well. But Paul writes about the mercies of God for another reason. You see, when this is written in the plural, the focus of these mercies is not just about the attitude that exists in the heart. Now the focus is placed on concrete actions that display this inner attitude. Brothers and sisters, when Paul gives all those evidences of God's mercy that were mentioned just a moment ago, these things are not just nice ideas, they're not just nice emotions that live in God's heart, these are things that are shown in some way. God's compassion, His patience, His kindness, His forbearance, His grace, His free gift, they're all shown in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is patient and kind toward people, giving them opportunity to flee to the foot of the cross, to seek forgiveness in the precious blood of God's own Son shed upon Golgotha. God's grace of justification through faith is given through a person believing in Jesus Christ as the way of peace with God. That free gift of God, eternal life, it's given only because Christ has obtained life for all those who believe in Him, who hold fast to Him as the one source of salvation. God's mercy all comes together in Jesus Christ, what He has done, what He has obtained for those whom He bought with His blood. And it's the mercies of God revealed in our Savior and what He has done, that's what serves as the motivation for God's people to offer themselves as a living sacrifice. Because consider even more what we have in Christ. Through Him we are restored to favor with the Father of all mercies. That's how Paul refers to God in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. Which means that in Christ, things go back to the way they were before the fall into sin. It means we are restored to that task of being priests to God. That was the position given to our first parents, Adam and Eve, along with that of being prophets and kings. And as priests, 
It was the task of man to love God, to show that love for God in all things. Well, with the fall into sin, showing that love for God was no longer possible. Instead of being filled with love, man is naturally filled with hatred. Well, throughout the Old Testament, what you see is that the Lord is working to bring this all back together once again. There were the priests from the line of Aaron. Their task was to serve in the temple. It included the responsibility to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Well, now through Christ, we no longer have priests offering sacrifices on our behalf, but united with our Savior through faith, each believer individually has that priestly task given to them again. Each believer individually has the responsibility to respond to God's mercies by loving Him and by offering themselves to Him as that living sacrifice. And as Paul writes in verse 1, this is your spiritual worship. Well, what does he mean by that? This word for spiritual is quite the interesting word. It's used only one other time in the New Testament. You find it in 1 Peter 2 verse 2, where God's Word speaks about longing for pure spiritual milk. Well, taken in that context, spiritual would contrast with something physical. Spiritual worship would be much different than simply going through the motions outwardly. But the same word also has a different meaning. This word in the original is the root word of our English word logic, and it can be translated as reasonable. So what Paul is likely saying at this point here in our text is that the believer offering themselves to God is his reasonable worship, his reasonable service. It is worship or service that makes sense it is the only natural response to the mercies of God in Jesus Christ. And when you think about it from that perspective, Paul here in our text gives an absolutely beautiful motive. The Christian offering themselves to God in thankfulness, they're not motivated by threat of punishment. They're not motivated by fear of discipline. They're motivated by the mercies of God shown in what their blessed Savior has done for them. And as one grows in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, that motivation continues to grow and increase as well. well now you see the importance of having the right structure in place. Yes, it's true for the catechism, for self-examination, it always has to begin with the knowledge of who we are in ourselves, that we are miserable, wretched sinners. Then we must move to the solution of the problem, the Son of God, the blessings of salvation He has bestowed upon us and continues to pour out on us. Because it's only when those two things are firmly fixed in our minds 
then we're truly motivated to live out of love for the God who has shown us such mercy. If you break up that structure in any way, if you put things in the wrong order, things will go off the rails very quickly. And then having presented the motivation for the required sacrifice, the inspired apostle goes on to deal with the character of this sacrifice. We come to our second point. The apostle describes the sacrifice of oneself with some very intentional language in verse 1. He writes that believers are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. We need to take all this and break it down just a little bit more. First question is, why does Paul specifically address the body? Well, the answer has to do with some common thinking at that time. According to Greek philosophy, the soul of a person was inherently good. The problem was with the body. The body was considered to be a prison for the soul, something that the soul had to escape from. Well, the apostle says, no way, that's wrong thinking. In fact, he frequently addresses the fact in all his letters that redemption includes the body which will then follow that thankfulness has to include the body as well. It comes back in chapter 6, verse 13. We read there, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And when Paul speaks about members there, he's referring to different parts of the body. He works the same thought out in 1 Corinthians 6. Once again, you have a congregation that had been deeply influenced by that Greek philosophy, and they thought very negatively about the body. And so Paul corrects them in verses 19 and 20. And he says there, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And then here's his conclusion. So glorify God in your body. For some of us, the words of Lord's Day 1 might come to mind. Our only comfort in life and death is that we belong not just with our soul, but also with our body to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what Paul's saying is this. When it comes to responding to God's mercies, it's not just having the right mindset. It's not just having the right attitudes. It's also about using our body in service to God. Our love for Him as a response to His mercy includes what we do with the body He has given to us. And from there, Paul moves on he talks about a living sacrifice. And here he's contrasting the sacrifice required of believers now with the sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament. You can think back to the book of Leviticus. There it tells how all the different offerings would be made. And just to give you the summary form, 
These animals would be brought to the altar, they'd be slaughtered by the priest, they'd be burned as a fragrant offering to the Lord. So when you deal with these sacrifices of the Old Testament, they're dead in every way. Well now, responding to God's mercies in Jesus Christ, those dead sacrifices are no longer what God requires. Since Christ's blood was shed, no more blood needs to be poured out, and the sacrifice now required by God is a living sacrifice. So you see that distinction between the new and the old, but there's also a connection. Because if you look at God's requirements for those Old Testament sacrifices in the first chapters of Leviticus, you'll often read that when these offerings were made, the blood of those animals had to be thrown against the altar. Ask yourself this, why does the Lord give specific instructions about the blood? Why doesn't He just say, drain it out? Why not let it remain in the animal being sacrificed? It's because blood was the symbol of life. Leviticus 17, verse 11, the Lord says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Well, with the blood of Jesus Christ having been poured out to make perfect atonement for our sins, there is no longer the need for blood to be shed. But there is still the requirement for life to be given to God, not as the means for atonement, but the entire life is to be given to God as that sacrifice of thankfulness for the atonement received. And then Paul has two more things. He gives two words describing the character of the sacrifice. He states it is to be holy and acceptable. Holy, set apart for service to God. Acceptable, pleasing to God. You find similar descriptions in the requirements for sacrifices in the Old Testament. The Lord required any animal offered to Him had to be without blemish, and it could have no defect. And in the end, it comes down to the same thing. God demands the absolute best from His people. God does not settle for scraps. God does not want bits and pieces or leftovers of our life here and there. The living sacrifice of our body must be entirely dedicated to His service. The living sacrifice of our body must be pleasing in His sight. And how this works out practically is shown in the rest of chapter 12, which we read earlier. In verse 6, it spoke about having received different gifts according to the grace given to us. Some have the gift of service, others exhorting, contributing to needs, leading, acts of mercy. Whatever the gifts that we have received from God by His grace, means using them to His glory for the benefit of others. There's also some things mentioned afterwards. Just to give an example, consider what we read in verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. 
abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. It doesn't get more practical than that. That's how you present yourself to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. But then it calls from self, for self-examination from each one of us. And each one individually can ask themselves, are those the things that show in my daily life? Am I using the gifts that God has given me to serve Him, to be a blessing to His people? Does my life reflect the mark of the Christian, to use that heading found above verse 9 in some Bibles? The truth is this, if we honestly reflect on such things, what we'll come to discover is just how limited our thankfulness really is. We said it just a moment ago, God demands everything. God demands our best. But if we examine ourselves in that way, what we see is that we so often settle for giving Him less. The sad reality is that we are much like the people of Israel who lived at the time God sent Malachi the prophet to them. And this is a time where the people were really just going through the motions. They were limping along and things were not good. And in chapter 1, verse 8 of Malachi, the Lord lays a heavy accusation against His people. He says there, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Well, to put it simply, the people of God were offering to God the leftovers from their flocks and herds. They weren't, they weren't giving God the best as He demanded. They kept the best for themselves, and their thankfulness to God was lacking in every way. The Lord says, you're giving me blind animals. You're giving me lame animals. He says, present that to your governor because he's not going to accept it, so why should I? what shows in our lives too often as well. Instead of giving the Lord our entire being, our entire life, what we actually do, even though we may not like to admit it, is that we give God our leftovers. First we live for the self, then we give some of our time and attention to God. Once we're satisfied with what we've gotten out of life, then what's left, that can go to the Lord. And so we give God our scraps. Our text shows us that's not the sacrifice of thankfulness the Lord requires. 
Because when we talk about that sacrifice, we always have to go back to the motivation. Think of that sacrifice in connection with God's rich and abundant mercies. God has delivered us from sin. God has delivered us from misery. God has delivered us even from the depths of hell by the sacrifice of His own Son. God has freely given us everything so that we might live in a right relationship with Him. And in that light, why should our response be anything less than our entire life? In light of God's abundant, rich mercies, why would we give to God only our scraps or our leftovers? When you think about it, from that perspective... Verse 1 of our text places before us a very heavy obligation. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And yes, daily, that forces each one of us to stop, to take stock of our lives, and to really ask ourselves some of those hard questions, including, what is my priority? What is the motivation I'm living out of each day? What's important to me? And when we put it all together, and we see that we are truly dependent on our triune God for everything, and this comes out even more when we consider the pattern of this sacrifice. In the second verse of our text, the Word of God lays before believers two specific instructions. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And both of these require some attention. When Paul speaks about not being conformed to this world, what exactly does he mean by that? Well, the word translated here as world can also be translated as age. And if you look elsewhere, he speaks about the nature of this present age, which is the time between the ascension and the return of Jesus Christ. And Paul doesn't hold anything back. In Galatians 1 verse 4, he says, it is an evil age. It is a world in rebellion against the Lord and against the norms and standards that God has established. Well, here's the problem. Our sinful nature is pulling us in that exact direction. The word for conform, it means to form according to a pattern or a mold. Well, by nature, our lives easily get formed by the standards or by the norms of this present age. Their goals becomes our goals, their ideas, they, we quickly take them over, their lifestyle, we see less and less problem with it, we try to blend in as much as possible, and eventually you can't tell us apart from anyone else. 
Paul says here in our text, that should not be the case. He says, don't just follow the crowd. Don't go there. Don't conform to what you see. And we find something else similar in Scripture. 1 Peter, 4, verse, 1 Peter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So yes, that's who we are by nature. God's Word says, don't go there. And the Lord Jesus prays about this matter in John 17, verses 16 and 17. He says, they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Brothers and sisters, the reality is this. To conform to the pattern of this world or the pattern of this age means that we attach ourselves to a world that is temporary, a world where everything is going to pass away. 1 John 2, verse 17. To conform to this world means to live only for the here and now and to completely ignore what does lie ahead. And so rather than conforming to such a world, there's a second instruction of our text, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Again, there's some things to notice. In the first place, the way in which Paul writes this in the original, it indicates continuous ongoing action. This transformation is not just a single event that takes place one day. This is something taking place every day of one's life. And then secondly, notice that Paul writes in the passive language. He doesn't say, transform yourselves. He says, be transformed. This transformation is something that must be done to us. To understand this, we can look closer at that word transformed. The word we have in the original is the root of our word metamorphosis. And perhaps an example from science will help to clarify that. You can think about the caterpillar who builds the cocoon and they undergo a metamorphosis or they undergo a transformation. They become a butterfly. Well, if you think about that, you see that this transformation is a radical change. Again, one that takes place over our whole life. And this kind of pattern is also brought out in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. You have the same word used. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. By the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives, we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We are being renewed back into what God created us to be right from the very beginning. Well, now you see why Paul uses the language he does. He doesn't say, you have to do this, you have to go out, you have to work harder. He points us to that work of redemption, the work which Christ has obtained, the work that the Spirit imparts to us and works in us. When you think about the renewing of mind, as Paul writes in our text, that's an impossible task for us to do. By nature, we're dead in sin. By nature, we're children of wrath, alienated from God in every way. 
but it's through Christ being washed in His blood, being renewed by His Spirit. It's then that our lives will look increasingly different. And then what needs to happen is that as we live by faith, we live out of the Spirit's work. Yes, our transformation is His work, but that doesn't mean we sit back and just wait for it to happen. If that were the case, Paul would not need to instruct the believers to be transformed. Since there's the command, we have to ask, what is our responsibility? Well, the answer, brothers and sisters, is that having been redeemed by Christ, with the Spirit doing His work in us, we need to put ourselves in a place where that transformation will continue. Think of the prayer of our Lord Jesus in John 17 mentioned earlier. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So to be transformed by the Holy Spirit places us under the holy obligation to be where the Spirit does His work and wields his tools. And that's right here in the worship service. And it means we cannot just be here physically, keeping the pew warm, but it's being actively engaged, working with what we're hearing. And from there, it's being busy with the Word of God every day of our lives, not just reading it because that's what's expected of us, but really studying it, meditating upon it, taking it to heart. You see, what we feed ourselves determines the direction in which we'll go. If we take a break from Scriptures, things are going to go in a bad direction. If we feed ourselves on the filth of this present age, our lives will conform to that filth increasingly. But if we're taking in the Word every day again, then that transformation into the image of Jesus Christ will, in fact, continue. So, brothers and sisters, there's one question. What's your diet look like? And then as the Spirit continues His transformation of our hearts, our minds, our lives, it will show because the Spirit's work always produces a result. Canons of Dort stated beautifully in chapter 3, 4, article 12, where it talks about regeneration. And there we confess, and then the will, so renewed, is not only acted upon and moved by God, but acted upon by God, the will itself also acts. With the Spirit doing His work, we increasingly present ourselves to God as that living sacrifice, doing so with increasing joy. By the Spirit's transformation, all those things that Paul writes at the end of chapter 12, they're not a burden for us in any way, but they simply become the normal pattern of life. And this comes out more when we consider the last part of our text. Paul concludes verse 2 by writing that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
And when he speaks about testing here, he doesn't mean holding something up to our personal evaluation. Testing has the sense of discerning or seeing the right way forward. Well, only by the Spirit's transforming work can the believers have such clear thinking. Only by the Spirit's work can they see God's will and do God's will. And when it refers to God's will here, it's not just a reference to the Ten Commandments, it's to all the instructions of Scripture in which the Lord tells His people, this is how you are to live before me. This is how you are to show your love for me. By submitting to that will, the lives of believers increasingly produce that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Our lives produce that which is pleasing to God, that true sacrifice of thankfulness. It's not just a nice idea that lives in the mind, but it is the pattern of life by which one follows. So, brothers and sisters, is that your desire? No, it won't be there perfectly. We still have that ongoing struggle against our sinful nature. But do you have that increasing desire to live for the Lord, to offer your body to Him as a living sacrifice? It's a serious question. Because as our text says, that is the logical response to God's mercy in your life. So it ultimately comes down to this last question with which we close the sermon. Knowing of the salvation that is yours by faith in Jesus Christ, what does that really mean to you? Amen.